Sounds and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamu alaikum, thanks for joining us. In this episode, Zirara and I, Zara, are joined by poet Baraka Blue. We talk about Jalal Adin Rumi as an individual and as a poet, and why with so many centuries between us, we still know his name. We talk about his body of work and the controversy surrounding English translations of his poetry. Before we get into that, I just wanted to mention that we're now on Patreon. If you don't know, Patreon is a platform that allows audiences to support content creators financially through our podcasts, our website and our social media platforms. Our work highlights aspects of Muslim history and culture that are often overlooked and focuses on providing resources for Muslim travellers. We're also committed to challenging Orientalist narratives in travel writing and photography and showcasing the work of writers and photographers whose work actively seeks to reclaim the narrative. Up until now, all of our content and the expenses involved in running a site and podcast have been funded by our small team of volunteers. We are committed to and fully believe in the work we are doing and inshallah the benefit it will bring. However, we find ourselves now at the point where for us to grow as an organisation, to put more time and effort into this and to reach our long-term goals, we will need the help of our supporters and those who equally believe in the work we are doing. So if you are able to, please consider becoming a patron and supporting us with a monthly donation, whatever the amount. Search for Sacred Footsteps on patreon.com. Thank you. My name is Baraka Blue. I'm a poet. I'm a musician. Uh, I'm a seeker. And uh, I'm inspired very much by the Sufi tradition of poetry um, it's actually how I got drawn into Islam and the Islamic tradition, and I've been a student of that for the last 15 years. I also have a podcast called Path and Present, so I'm honored to be on your podcast. Um, and I've had the honor, really, of traveling, performing, doing workshops, teaching about Islam, Islamic spirituality, and poetry for the last uh, decade or so. So I'm honored to be here to talk about this topic. You know, your podcast is probably one of the first that I started listening to regularly. For people listening, if you like ours, you'll probably like Baraka's too. So I'll put your I'll put a link in the show notes in case people want to check that out. So this is an episode we've planned to record. Uh, we've been planning to record for a while. And it's kind of pure coincidence that we're doing so now when Rumi and his poetry are kind of the hot topic again. But we'll come to that later. We'll explain a bit more why that is afterwards. But to begin with, I think it'd be really beneficial to first learn something about Jalaluddin Rumi as an individual, because we're all aware of his work. Well, we're all aware of his name. Uh, many of us are aware of his work, but we may not know so much about his background. Um, so Baraka, would you be able to do that for us and also tell us a bit about the context in which he lived? MashaAllah. This is a great topic and there's so much that could be said, but in a few minutes we'll try to do our best to summarize. And uh, we can take it from his own words. Maulana Rumi said, about his own life, that it was three stages. And he said, I was raw, I cooked, I burned. <laughs> so these are the three stages of his life. And uh, 
often these are um, compared to the idea of the Sharia, the Tariqah, and the Hakika, these three dimensions of Islam, i.e., the sacred law, the spiritual path, and then the ultimate realities, the experiential knowledge that is attained through the through those. Uh, so we can fra uh, frame it around that. But uh, within history, Maulana Rumi was born in around 1207 of the Common Era, which is 604 after the Hijra, in Balkh which is in modern-day Afghanistan. There's actually scholarly debate. Some say he was born in Vakhsh, which is in Tajikistan. In any case, he was from that region. Uh, his father was a scholar, uh, Baha'uddin Valad, and was a Sufi, and was critical of the overly rationalistic and legalistic um, trends within Islam of the time. In fact, he was critical, for instance, of Fakhruddin Razi, who was a great uh, philosopher of the time. He was very critical of him by name. Uh, when Rumi was about 10 years old, the family, uh, Baha'uddin Valad, his family, and then his disciple, his circle, they migrated uh, west from Balkh to uh, they went actually through much of the Muslim world, through Sham, Syria. Then they made the pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina and ended up settling in Anatolia, in the city of Konya, which was then the seat of the Seljuk Empire. And there he became, uh, he found a patron, uh, the sultan of the Seljuk uh, Empire there, uh, Aladdin gave him a prestigious post at one of the madrasas, and so he was uh, teaching. So, Maulana Rumi had a very good education of a classical scholar of that age, in which he, of course, memorized the Qur'an, the tradition of hadith, Qur'an commentary, the various um, disciplines of language, and mathematics, and astronomy, uh, etc. So that was his his kind of the raw phase was he was learning all these things when he was uh, in his early 20s his father passed away and uh, this must have been very difficult for him at that time because of again his it was his father but also he was in this milieu of his father's students and disciples and so uh, Maulana Rumi because he had basically been this student uh, you know star pupil up to that time he actually took over his father's position in the madrasa and was teaching the outward disciplines of the Islamic sciences. Uh, Maulana Rumi was a, a Hanafi faqih, a scholar of the Hanafi school of jurisprudence. And at that time, once his father passes away, Maulana begins what you could say the, the cooking phase in which he takes the spiritual path with uh, someone named Burhanuddin Muhaqqiq, who was his first sheikh. Muhaqqiq means the verifier or the realizer, the one who experiences the haq, the ultimate reality. And Burhanuddin was actually one of Rumi's father's uh, chief disciples. So he takes the spiritual training of Rumi and puts him through the spiritual disciplines. And Rumi also during that time, he goes to Syria, to Aleppo and Damascus and studies uh, kind of more advanced, you could say like graduate level Islamic studies there. And then he comes back and he's teaching uh, there in Konya. And he's uh, 
you know, basically the life of a scholar, teaching, studying, learning, has his spiritual master. Burhanuddin passes away uh, when Rumi's in his early 30s, and then Rumi continues on teaching. Now, up until this point, his life was not um, altogether strange. <laughs> it was, you know, the life of a Muslim scholar of that period, of that era. And up until that point, if it would have stayed like that, Rumi would probably not be known. In fact, he would probably be an obscure footnote, maybe in someone's PhD thesis mm. uh, or not, you know, because there was thousands and thousands of Muslim scholars and of Sufi sheikhs in that period all over the world. But, of course, the seminal moment that comes in his life, which transforms his life, is his meeting with Shamsa Tabriz. And this comes when Rumi is about 37 years old. And uh, there's many great stories about their meeting. But the essence of it is that Shams, one of the great stories is that Rumi was uh, sitting, teaching his father's books to one of to his disciples next to a, uh, a fountain or a pond or a well and uh, Shems comes in and grabs the book out of Rumi's hands and throws it into the water and says when are you going to stop talking about this and start living it and of course uh, the students jump up to defend their teacher who is this man how dare he do this to our teacher and Rumi stops them and realizes that this is the truth. These words pierce his heart because he says, I am speaking about it, but not living it. And then the story goes, Shams actually takes the book out of the water and it's dry as if to say like, there are realities that you don't know about. And their relationship, there's so little that can be said in a few minutes. And in fact, 800 years is yet to uncover the great uh, and exhaust the mysteries of this relationship. But suffice it to say, this was what initiated the fire that cooked Mawlana Rumi. There was an opening that came to him. And within the Sufi path, they talk about the fact that you have the Sheikh Ta'lim who teaches you. Then you have the Sheikh uh, Tarbiyah, who gives you spiritual uh, refinement. And then you have the Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Al-Fatah, who gives you your great opening, the enlightening Sheikh, you could say, the one who gives you your awakening. And this is what Shemps was to Rumi. Um, he gave him the experience that was theoretically taught by Rumi's father and by his Sufi sheikhs before. And now Maulana Rumi experienced this. And you could say in many sense, in a sense, interestingly enough, Rumi lived till he was about 70. So this meeting came halfway through his life and the rest of his life was de dedicated to essentially explaining this and guiding other disciples on the path. So Rumi and Shams were together only for three years. So uh, Shams disappeared when Rumi was 40. And Shams was older than Rumi by 20 some years probably. And so uh, they were really only together for a short period of time. It's debated why, what happened to Shams. Aflaki, who is the earliest biographer of Rumi, said that that actually... Some of Rumi's jealous disciples, including one of Rumi's sons, killed Shams out of jealousy because Rumi was a great uh, sheikh in the city and was deeply respected. But after he devoted himself to, sheikh, uh, to Shams, who was kind of a man of ill repute, you know, and seen kind of as someone who wasn't worthy of respect, 
Um, and it was kind of beneath this great scholar to essentially devote himself to this man. And then also Rumi stopped teaching. He had no concern for teaching a- after that. And so it's said that some of the disciples were jealous. Now, others debated and modern kind of scholars and historians have debated that. I tend to not believe that they would do such a thing. But um, in any case, Rumi did disappear. I mean, Shems did disappear. And at this point, Rumi was really uh, heartbroken because what he had found in Shams was so transcendent. But after a period of time, Rumi came to realize that the final lesson of Shams was that what he, what Rumi had seen in Shams, in, in other words, through the mirror of Shams, Rumi had seen the light of the ultimate reality. He had seen the names and attributes of the truth manifested. And he felt that what Shams was teaching him by disappearing was that what he saw in Shams was ever-present and was both transcendent beyond everything, but yet somehow Im- imminent within uh, and with everything within the cosmos. And that, uh, of course, with Shams departing, it doesn't take away that realization. So Rumi ultimately came to that realization, and then Rumi uh, then kind of devotes himself he doesn't go back to the madrasa and teaching the sacred law. No, he uh, removes himself from that and he focuses on this, the disciples of Sufis and he devotes himself to poetry and dance and music and teaching disciples upon the path. And of course, Rumi, uh, there's three major works that Rumi that we have of Rumi's. There's mm-hmm. some letters and khutbas, but we'll leave those aside for now. But you have his prose work, which is called Fihi Ma Fihi, which means in it is what's in it. Or as, as we might say uh, in English, colloquially, it is what it is. Basically, it is what it is. And uh, this is actually some of Rumi's lectures. So if you're interested in that, you can find that. And um, it's been translated. And it, it kind of gives a sense of how Rumi delivered his um, talks to his disciples. And then there's two works of poetry. There's the Diwan, Diwani Kabir or the Diwan Shamsi Tabriz. Um, and then there's the Masnavi. So I'm just going to stop you there if you don't mind. I think we'll, we'll come back to the Masnavi after, but thank you for that. That was so thorough and so beautifully told as well. Zirar, I'm just going to bring you in here as well. Is there anything you want to add to that? No, I'm just enjoying the history lesson. I know, right? <laughs> Um, no, I have a question. I'm just listening. Um, so I'm I don't identify as a Sufi. I don't have a tariqa or anything. So I, I'm always you know looking from the outside and trying to understand. So from a Rumi from a Rumi's life perspective, so did, when he abandoned teaching the sacred law, and that's just for people who are not Muslim may not know the sacred law of Islam. Um, and he, does he abandon Orthodox Sunni Islam as we knew it then? And and does he start teaching Sufism, and and what does that look like in terms of abandoning the teaching of of fiqh um, and other Islamic law and moving into this path of Sufism? So, what's the transformation like for Rumi? What does he start teaching? What is this annihilation, this burning? What does that look like for anybody who's curious, as I am? Mashallah, it's a really good question, and um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, essentially, there's the history of Rumi, then there's the history of his. Um, reception in the Muslim world after his life, and then there's kind of the history of his reception in the West. Those are all kind of important histories that kind of have to be understood to really have this conversation. But I think 
the gist of it is that Rumi comes, um, unlike a, many Western people might see it, Rumi was not an aberration. In fact, Rumi comes in a real renaissance of spirituality in the Muslim world. So for about a hundred or so years before Rumi, you have this real renaissance, this flowering of Sufism within the Islamic world. You have people like uh, Imam al-Ghazali, uh, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, his brother Ahmed al-Ghazali, who was deeply influential in the Persian world. You have Ibn Arabi. Yeah, I think Ibn Arabi. Yeah. You have Attar. You have uh, Kubrawi. You have uh, Buckley. Abdul Qadir Jilani. You have all of these great um, scholars. So Rumi really is taking. He, you know, he's really not to be seen as an aberration. He's a real, really like a great fruit on the tree that was flowering with many fruits at this time. Wow. And so Rumi is, you know, he doesn't abandon the sacred law when he takes the path, but he just retires from teaching it, you could say. So, uh, yes, his entire life, he's committed to the practice of Islam. And I think for Rumi, he sees the spiritual vision as Sufism as the true depth of Islam. And he sees that, you know, we talked about the raw cooking and burning. There's the Sharia, the sacred law, which is the path, which is the outward practice. And this is a discipline of transformation as Rumi sees it. Rumi is very critical of those who make an idol of the sacred law or stop at the sacred law and don't go beyond it. Not in the sense of leaving it, but use it to transform them, right? That this is a series of practices that is supposed to lead us somewhere. And then the tariqah is that kind of inward transformation, the virtue acquisition, purification of the heart. And then this leads to the haqiqah, the, trans the realization, those states. So now I would say I'm kind of like anticipating if we're talking about a Western audience, you know, people often see Maulana Rumi as uh, someone who is kind of transcending or altogether throwing off the shackles of tradition and standing outside or beyond it. And this ultimately says a lot about the history of the West and where we are presently in the West's relationship with religion and post-religion. And so interpreting Rumi in light of that more than it does about Maulana Rumi himself, who, you know, he, his vision is deeply Quranic and deeply prophetic. Before we just, I wanted to ask you about the the burning stage because I, people ask me, I don't know why people assume I'm a Sufi and I know this stuff. I always struggle with this because the idea of finna, of, of uh, this burning self-annihilation, what did that look like for, for uh, I guess, a Sufi master like Jalaluddin Rumi from moving from Orthodox and, you know, this very strict... Um, I'm sure many, I think many of the um, his contemporaries had the same issue, like Ibn Arabi and Al-Wazali, who also took a break from his teaching. So what, what did that look like for Rumi? What was the, the annihilation? Was that just a self-realization and the adoption of those teachings, purification of the heart? Is that what it refers to? Rather than more of a, obviously it's not a literal meaning, but is, is that essentially what it is? The burning of the ego and, and that within that realm? 
this is a really good question. When we talk about Sufism, often the there's an idea that there's um, stations and states, ahwal and maqamat, on the spiritual path. And they are differentiated because ahwal, or spiritual states, they overcome the seeker on the path, but they are fleeting. They come and then they go. And they may be states of uh, expansion or states of contraction, states of ecstasy or states of uh, separation. But then the maqam are stations as opposed to the states. So the stations are more firmly fixed. These are kind of like state, you know, stations that one realizes as one ascends the spiritual path. And then the kind of highest levels of realization are usually seen as fana or baqa. And fana literally means annihilation and baqa means subsistence. And so fana means annihilation of the ego self, the kind of individuated I that one uh, identifies with, i.e. the false self, the lowercase I. And, you know, it's kind of above my pay grade to speak about this, but in the theoretical aspect, the understanding is that one's, you know, Rumi uses a lot of metaphors to explain this. And one of the ones that he uses is the ocean in a drop, right? If we are each, a, a you know, a, a drop of water, like a raindrop, and we're experiencing life on earth, and we, uh, as a raindrop, we feel separate. We're this individual little drop, right? But the moment that the drop hits the water, where is the drop? Now there is nothing but the ocean. There is nothing but unity and oneness. And the individuated self that was a raindrop is no more. And so this is a metaphor to explain that state. When one's separate selfhood is essentially annihilated in the ocean of divine unity. And this, in this state, it's categorized by actually not being able to see multiplicity. You're, you're, you're totally unaware of the world. Baqa is when one comes back to see the world of multiplicity, but in light of unity. So you're seeing the world of multiplicity, but you're not veiled by it uh, from seeing the one behind all of this. So in, in essence, you're back in the movie or the play of existence, but you're essentially observing the director or the one who is writing the story, the author of the story. And uh, so this is kind of what, you know, a few words that could be said about those states. I want to move on to his actual body of work now. So can you tell us, Baraka, about what exactly is the Masnavi? Like at what point in his life did Rumi write it? And why is it so often referred to as the Persian Quran? MashaAllah. So the Masnavi is, as we mentioned, 25,000 verses. It's six uh, books. And uh, it was written at the end of Maulana Rumi's life over a number of years, I think 12 or 13 years at the end of his life. The story is that Rumi and his disciples, they would read the poems of Attar and some of the other great Persian poets before Rumi 
in their gatherings and they would chant the names of God and they would accompany with uh, musical instruments. And then um, they would, Rumi would also c compose poems as well. But the idea of a masnevi is like a long form uh, kind of like didactic teaching poem that is in rhymed couplets. And so Rumi had not written, even though he had written much poetry, he had not written something in this form. And so the story is that Husamuddin Chalabi, one of his chief disciples, came to Maulana Rumi and said, will you please compose something like Sana'i uh, or Atar? And Maulana Rumi took off his turban and then he produced a piece of paper which had the first 18 lines of the Masnavi, Beshno Azne, the first lines, listen to the song of the reed. And uh, so that was the first 18 lines. And basically, the, the rest is history, as they say. The book is, it doesn't have a frame tale. So like Atar's um, great works, they have a frame tale. So like the Conference of the Birds, it is one overarching story of these birds which go to find the king of the birds, right? Which is a metaphor for the spiritual path. The, the seekers try to attain the, to find the divine presence. But within that frame tale, there's a bunch of other stories that are told within it. Whereas the Masnevi, it doesn't have a frame tale. In fact, it's just hundreds and hundreds of different stories that in certain sense seem to have no um, apparent order, although mm -hmm. there is an order and there's stories within stories and all these things. And because of that, it's often kind of likened to the Quran in that the Quran itself is not like overarching stories. It's kind of like a tapestry where all these stories and all right. these narratives and all these discourses and all these even perspectives and, and even, you know, different things are woven almost like a, a, a great Persian carpet or something like this. And so Rumi's Masnavi is in many senses taking on that style and I think it was Jami who called it the Quran in Persian. And, you know, there's probably many levels of commentary on that. But one is stylistically. But then, two, it is a commentary on the Quran, right? Maulana Rumi says this is the usul, usul, usul al-din, like the root of the root of the root of the religion. So it's essentially, you could say, an esoteric or a mystical commentary upon the Quran uh, in poetic form. That's really beautiful. Yeah, just just one more to add to that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, thank you for that. I think the other reason they call it the Persian Quran is because if you look at the theme, um, the themes within the Masnavi, I think they break up into six or seven different areas, and the moral reflection part of the the Masnavi d uses direct quotations from the Quran and the Hadith, so it has examples of the Prophet's life, sallam, and so there's. Other, alongside the style, like Baraka said, the other, for people listening, is, you know, it does directly, I think, pull in the Quran as well, which is beautiful. And I think it was a, it, the way he interwove that was was something that hadn't been done before. So I think that's why it takes that form throughout the Masnavi and then a chapter on moral reflection directly pulls the Quran in without that. I think without the imagery and the visuals, it literally just, just references it and explains it. So there's a lot of structural analysis too, which makes it like the Quran. Um, but that's a different, like Baraka said, that's a whole different study. But that's, I think, a two themes to think about when you when you hear the words, the Persian Quran.
I love the idea of a tapestry woven together. I think it's a beautiful metaphor. Okay, so moving on slightly, I mentioned earlier that Rumi is kind of a hot topic right now on social media, but more specifically is the controversy surrounding English translations of his work. And I think, Baraka, you kind of alluded to that as well. But this is not really a new controversy because it kind of, I feel like it resurfaces periodically, especially there was an article in the New Yorker a few years ago, The Erasure of Islam from the Poetry of Rumi by Razina Ali. And I feel like that's, it's kind of constantly circulated, but for whatever reason, it seems to be picking up more momentum again. But Zarar, can you tell us about that, why that controversy has kind of arisen? Yeah, there's a few there's a few reasons. I, I think the reason the controversy is it's I think it's arising again is because I think people generally Muslims who, who have been avid readers of Rumi and there's new there's new people who come into the world of poetry and Islam and they and Sufism and, and uh, Malana Rumi is a great door for that. They they see his work and he pulls them in. So people have almost grown up in the internet age reading Rumi on uh, on a different platform in different format so a lot of people were gifted Rumi books in English and most of them have not known anything else so when when this article in 2007 by Rosina Ali came along it was an article it was it was passed along and then it kind of was you know it disappeared because this is what happens with blogs and these kind of articles I think that article missed the space of social media so now the social media has just you know, it's exponentially growing. So when when you now share something alongside what that message was from the New Yorker, I think people people pay attention and they say, wait, these quotes or these Instagram pages or Twitter accounts that share these these wisdoms of Molana Rumi are these not authentic? And I think I think people have started to feel a bit betrayed because especially the Muslims, I think, who've assumed this is a very Muslim book. And when they realize there's Islamic references removed, I think there's an element of feeling betrayed. And, you know, the the comments around colonialism of literature and, and, and religion comes into it. Whereas I feel like more of the Western audience and maybe the non-Muslim audiences don't don't really feel that issue, ha, as an issue. Um, so I, you know, I, I personally, I, I did a story maybe six months ago based on this New York article and I did some own research into the Masnavi and, and how it's changed over the years in different translations. So I, you know, I just tested the waters and I said, look, let me see what people think, because most people probably already know this. And they will just say, well, we know this. This is just the nature of translations. What is the big deal? And the response was quite, was quite well, it was overwhelming. And then recently we started talking about this again. And there's a couple of friends of mine and, who are Persians. And so, you know, we decided we need to explore this further because if we're going to have a dual system of learning Persian or in English, people should at least know what they're learning. That's simple as that. So we started just essentially sharing translations which were authentic, as close to the literal translations as possible versus what's most popular. And yeah, I think that's really where the controversy began. People just felt upset. They felt upset that they had been reading something that was a very loose interpretation. And I think that marketing of being Rumi versus a translation or a loose interpretation is where people felt the betrayal, and and you've now we've now seen celebrities, we've seen some scholars, uh, we've seen some religious authorities around the world taking interest, saying, uh, you know, we've always read Rumi in Turkish or Arabic or Farsi. We had no idea you guys were reading this in English, which which raises the interesting question: which Rumi are we reading? And I think that's where this kind of is now taking off. 
So I'll put some of the posts that we're referring to, I'll put them in the show notes in case people want to see them. But from my point of view, like seeing some of the literal translations compared to some of the more popular English ones and seeing the difference between them, it was quite shocking because although I was already aware of a lot of this, seeing it like that kind of in black and white, it really kind of uh, drove the point home. But Baraka, you actually wrote a really interesting post on Facebook on this topic, but this was a few a few months back, right? I know that your views differ slightly from Zirara's here, so I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts about it too. Yeah, mashallah. So I think it's for me, it's not like a either or, it's just a yes and. In, in other words, I share... Uh, many of the same sentiments and there's uh, it's undoubted that many of the popular versions of Rumi are not a hundred percent accurate um I think if we just give a little historical background it'll be helpful without going too far into the history if you look at in the 20th century early 20th century you have Nicholson who was one of the great uh, Orientalists uh, in England, and he was really a, a master of Arabic as well as Persian. He was the first one to translate the Masnavi in its entirety into English, and he translated it for the students of Persian. That, in other words, English speakers that wanted to learn Persian. So it's really like to be read alongside the Persian. And because of that, it's very academic and very literal and very accurate, mm. actually. But it also has many brackets and it's actually not very poetic, to put it lightly. Right. Yeah. But it is accurate. So it's really good as a study manual. And actually, he dedicated like 15 years of his life to this. Um, it's a, it was a monumental project. In fact, one of the like amazing anecdotes about this is that uh, he actually lost his vision poring over these old manuscripts. That's how much he loved this. And he dedicated really, he gave his eyes so that we could wow. read Mona for me in English, right? And his actually, he compiled, he then put out a, a edited version of the uh, the Persian text, which is actually, I understand, still the most widely read or one of the most widely read in the Persian speaking world where he's actually deeply respected for, for his scholarship. So what happened in the sixties, particularly, and then the seventies in the counterculture period of the West, when there's this mass um, turning to the East for spiritual edification and there's a, you, you know, this idea of lack of contentment with, Western forms of religion and other institution, right? There's critique of war, there's critique of patriarchy, there's critique of all these other aspects, and there's this newfound mass openness to Eastern spirituality. In that period, uh, Nick, you know, Rumi became uh, into more popular view. But of course, it was in smaller circles at first because Nicholson was really for an academic audience. But what happens is Robert Bly who was a, is a popular American poet, he said to another friend of his, Coleman Barks, who was a, another popular American poet, he said, you should, he gave him Nicholson's translation and he said, you should free these from their cages. And in other words, use these literal translations and render them in a popular idiom that will speak to our people. And so Coleman Barks 
then did that. So Coleman Barks is the number one popularizer of Rumi, and uh, he's the one who gets the bulk of the criticism nowadays for his translations. And he's he's the one who sold hundreds of thousands of uh, 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 books on Rumi, and he's really more than anyone outwardly uh, responsible for the popularization of Rumi. Now, Coleman Barks translates. Uh, he doesn't translate. He takes Nicholson's and then he renders it. So he doesn't speak Persian, right. and so he renders renders this into modern free verse, uh, kind of like beat poet esque versions of Rumi. Now, I don't know. For me, it's 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 a yes and because it is really important to keep in mind that the those translations are just as much Coleman Barks as they are Rumi, right? So, uh, you know, that is important to keep in mind. And he makes choices, having Hosnadan, having good opinion, which is part of our dean, he makes choices, like any translator does, to, to articulate the um, idioms and the meanings of a specific text into a cultural context that is very different from medieval uh, Islamic civilization. And mm -hmm. so he articulates it in a way that he thinks modern contemporary um, English readers will understand and will resonate. So often he makes very, you could say, liberal choices with how he translates it. And sometimes he gets it wrong altogether because he doesn't understand the source. But m m by and large, it's not that. What I found is it's actually that he just makes choices. And often those choices do mean downplaying Islamic references. So that is unfortunate on, on a level. I affirm that absolutely. And I think for the serious student of Rumi, you have to go beyond, the, beyond those. On the other hand, I do think that we have to keep in mind that he has done a great service in that he has exposed people to Maulana Rumi. I mean, we have to remember, like, there's no, it's not a given that Rumi would be the number one selling poet in America. Because if you think back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was another Persian poet who was loved in America and, and England, and that was Omar Khayyam, right? His Rubiyat was translated, and people loved it, and there was like whole, you know, people would gather, you know, devote themselves to this text, and now that's come out of fashion. Right. And there was a time when Sana'i was even more known than Rumi and others like that. But now it's it happens to be Rumi. So I think this is a good thing, obviously. Right. The, the fact that people know about one of the great Oliya, one of the great saints and great sages of human history of our tradition. This is a great thing and it's a great entry point for people. So in essence, though, what we're really saying is that these translations were never really intended for a Muslim audience, right? Yeah, definitely they weren't. Yeah, they're definitely not written for, you know, uh, an English speaking Muslim audience um, who, you know, when he was writing whatever in the 90s was obviously a very small percentage of the English speaking market and, and still is, even if it's a fraction larger than it was then. 
So what we're really talking about is um, is introducing. Just to step back for a second, I think we're when you say something like introducing Rumi to the world, we're talking to the Western world because I feel like I feel like majority of the world, which is not in the West, have been familiar with Molana Rumi, you know, for 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 a long time. And so if you do look at Umar Hayam. What what happened with Umar Hayam is really interesting. So for for people who don't know the history of of that poet, they they really detangled his uh, his identity and faith from him because they considered him a new age because he was a scientist. The John Fitzgerald who translated the Rubaiyat, he he wanted to take him away from Islam because for a Victorian English period to accept that you're learning these liberal values from a Muslim was unacceptable so this was an intention this wasn't unintentional this wasn't choices made like like box may have made choices these were intentionally done and so what they called this is what i find interesting what they called him was they called him a, a grapey poet meaning a wine poet so what they did was they took out all islam and historical references and they inserted wine into almost every single couplet so i've read the rubaiyat in a few different translations and it's very difficult to imagine have you know having this um, you know this 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 Muslim scientist, this Sunni Orthodox Muslim scientist, who's he, he may have drank wine. That's a different debate. To be writing like this, and now there's a new debate whether he even wrote anything. But the point is, he, they detangled Islam entirely. So what's happened with Rumi, essentially, is the same thing because when Rumi was introduced by by Reynolds or Arbery, and and Reynolds was amazing, you know, because he spoke Punjabi as well as as well as uh, as Farsi and Arabic. He he introduced Persian Rumi to the world. Now, that's only to the Western academic world. What Box has done is he's introduced it to the Western world who wanted to understand Rumi, but with a twist. Now, the choices he's made, and I think we have to be honest here, the choices Box has made are quite, I think, quite explicit in, in the sense that they take away a lot of the, I think, I think, modesty of, of a very, well, of a Sunni sheikh, essentially. So if you look at translations like, uh, you have no sexual longing anymore, or uh, you you don't have a, a spiritual sexual desires. This is not something Molana would ever say. So when Box introduces this hypersexualization of Rumi, we have to ask the question: Are these choices being made by Box to make him more uh, more understanding for a Western audience, or is this to feed into that Orientalist view that this this grape wine drinking mystic Sufi poets were not really Muslim? These were almost heretics who were breaking away from this very strict orthodox Islam. And what that what that has done today is people have questioned whether Rumi was even Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I get people asked, I, I have people who are Muslim asking me, I didn't think he was Muslim. Which which for me is is, is you know it's it's quite disappointing. But then to hear from a Western audience that there's now even a debate whether he was even a Muslim at all amongst the Western West Western world as well. So now there's this, this tangling and this wrangling going on between if we're trying to just make him more popular in the West, at what cost? Because if the idea is to introduce him to the Western audience, if you look at someone like Dick Davis, for example, Dick Davis, he's married to a Persian. He, he speaks Persian fluently. He's translated the uh, the Shahnameh of uh, Ferdowsi, who's who's probably the greatest Persian poet of modern times in the last, well, at least 500 years. And then you have, and, and Hafiz Shirazi. Dick mm-hmm. Davis has done an excellent job introducing Hafiz and Shahnameh to the West without introducing such problems. And I think this is where we have to balance things out and say, at what cost do we make Rumi the most popular poet in the West? Because we have to remember, Mulan Rumi was also very popular in the East 
in Arabic and Turkish and Urdu as it is. This was before Box came along. So really, we're speaking only about a very small part of the Western world where um, he's now become a name because of Box. Because I think we we can't give Box that credit to say he's made Rumi famous because I think then you're discrediting the works of centuries of translators in the East who've been spreading, if you like, Rumi as a, as a scholar and as a, as a beautiful poet and a mystic for for centuries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I would say yes and. There's a, a few important kind of things you mentioned. And one is, yeah, you're right. I mean, Rumi is incredibly influential in the Muslim world. And it's important to note, actually, that there's, as others have noted, there's two essential like cultural zones of the Muslim world traditionally. There's the Arabic sphere and then the Persianate sphere. And these, of course, there's subcultures within those, but essentially it is what the lingua franca was. And so the Arabic sphere is from essentially Iraq all the way through Arabia and through North Africa, Andalusia, as well as sub-Saharan Africa. The language, uh, the lingua franca of discourse of educated people was, was Arabic. Now, from the Balkans to Bengal, this Persianate sphere, the actual lingua franca was Persian. And that's why many people from the subcontinent, right, their, their grandfather spoke Persian. It's, you know, and so in that Persian sphere, which was broader in both geography as well as population, Rumi was arguably the most influential author. You know, the, the most influential work after the Quran was the Masnavi. So... Uh, this is really important to understand. And then, of course, with, with the Ottoman Empire, the Mevlevi order, the order founded by Rumi, it even had, you know, it had centers in Mecca and Medina and Cairo and all throughout Syria and other parts of the, the, the Arab world as well. So it wasn't that it, but it was more marginal in the Arab world. That is true. One of the problems, I think, with Islam in America, as far as Rumi is concerned, is that we're Arab centric. And so, and that's, of course, because of the people want to study the Quran and the Hadith, which is important. And then there's also the anti-Shia bias piece that has, you know, that's a whole nother conversation I want to get into. But because Iran, obviously, the Persian world for most of its history was Sunni and then more recently became Shia as, as far as the predominant major, majority of Iran. So that's another side conversation. But I had a very prominent Muslim uh, scholar at one of the most prominent institutions in America tell me uh, that Rumi was uh, was not mainstream, right? This is a vantage point that many people have, and in fact, one of the the great the most prominent Arab scholars in the Arab contemporary Arabic world, he actually said, he said the reason that the that the non-Muslims have taken Rumi is because we kicked him out of Islam. We we've made him a kafir, so they took him. So in, in, in essence, my post, you know, I was reflecting on, yes, it is sad that Islam has been taken out of Rumi. But what is more sad to me is that Rumi has been taken out of Islam. And in, in essence, you're not going to find a conference or a masjid or a dis, you know, where, where Rumi is, where his works are discussed or where he's reflected on. And I think that to me is far more sad. Now, uh, and I know I'm tr I'm trying not to be verbose, but I want to address because you said a bunch of things. The other piece about the non-Muslim just West, you know, the vision a people is always going to interpret 
any tradition or any individual in their own likeness. We all project ourselves and our understandings. And so the uh, popular version of Rumi says more about the modern West than, and its relationship to religion and spirituality than it says about Rumi, right? So what you have in the West is like this very post-Christian um, kind of trauma that Western people have with religious wars and the, the church um, and you know, this moving away from organized religion in the 60s and 70s. And often it's that they're seeking something real and something that's not hierarchical, where, where men are in the structure of power are telling them what God says, right? And so they're seeking an actual personal relationship to God. They're seeking something that is relational and devoted and love-based and mystical. And it's not just based on rules, but it's based actually... It's not based on rules and power structures, but it's based on transformation and transcendence and a personal relationship with the source of existence. And so because of that, if you're looking through that lens, you're going to find that in Rumi because there is a lot in Rumi. There is much critique of the religious establishment. There is much critique of those who are veiled by the outward law from the inward reality. There's much critique of those who have an overly literalistic or rationalistic relationship with the divine. There's this emphasis on love, this emphasis on your personal relationship, this ecstatic experience of the divine. Um, And your point about like, yes, Barks takes many of the, see, unfortunately in translation, it's hard to translate poetry. And partially I think why I actually am easier on Barks than others is because I'm a poet and I've tried to translate poetry from other languages and I know how hard it is. It's really difficult. That's but not. He was, I think Barks was using English, right? Barks was translating from English, so he should right. he should have known English, right? Right, but you have to make choice. I'm not excusing everything, and I think you're right. There are right because obviously Maulana Rumi. There's he's always he he makes references to the erotic, but it's always metaphorical to the divine ultimate reality. He talks about wine a lot, but it's also, it's always talking about ma'rifa and the spiritual experience using it as an analogy. So when you lose that, and part of that is that Rumi's context, the people that he was around, that he was writing for, they would have known they had the same symbolic universe. That's the difficulty of translating poetry. If you don't have the same reference point, the shared symbolic universe, it's you, you can't. And so this is the thing about poetry. If you're trying to translate meaning into a whole different symbolic universe but take the same meanings i completely agree with you i think that's a really important point that's a really i agree with you completely on that when you're coming from a different reference point different essentially world you lose that right you don't have that reference where where i think you have a comparable i always bring up hafiz because hafiz really was an erotic poet you know hafiz was honest about it he wasn't very he, you know, his name may have meant the mem- the memorizer of the Quran, but Hafiz, Hafiz was much looser in his in his work, and you could really sexualize him, and few could have issues with that. But Dick Davis, it really came down to who who picked who poets. So if Dick Davis came along, Hafiz and Barks found Rumi, they went completely opposite directions. Whereas Rumi, 
I don't so Rumi doesn't doesn't have erotic references in in, in any way. But anyway, that's a, a matter of interpretation. But what I think the, under the cloak of translation, we can't excuse some choices that Barak has made because to to purposely remove Islam, belief, Christianity, and Judaism, that's a choice. Um, to introduce sexuality, that's a choice. Um, and to use English to turn translate into new English, that's a choice. So I think I think what happens is. And, and you know you you made choices to sexualize somebody or change their religion. That's a choice. He even introduces, I think, Buddhism and Zen into Rumi, which you know Rumi wouldn't have done that, and he hasn't done that. Again, that's a that's a choice. So really, what you get is you get the poetry of Rumi written by Coleman Brox, and he should really have his name on it. So finally, like I think I think we're maybe reaching the end of this time. Is just one final point from my side on this is if you if you look at Rumi. In the East, I think I think it's a false dichotomy to say Rumi was taken out of Islam. I think whoever's whoever said that, of course, it's, it's an anecdotal, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is if you look in the East, so in my time in Iran, I found Rumi's Masnavi in people's handbags, and mm-hmm. these are again anecdotal. I have, if you look at Muhammad Iqbal, who I'm currently translating from Urdu and Farsi into English, his entire work is based on Maulana Rumi, and Iqbal is the most important poet in the subcontinent. Maulana Rumi is used in Sufi circles around the world. He hasn't been taken out of Islam. This, of course, is, you know, it's interpretation and how you want to see it. To say the East has rejected Rumi and the West has taken him on, I think is a false position because the Barks did not take Rumi on out of a desire to you know, give longevity to his work. He did what Fitzgerald did to Hayam and what Dick Davis has done to Hafiz. And and so you can question, you know, the intentions. But I, as someone from the East and the West, because, you know, I'm a child of both worlds, I've experienced the two beautiful sides of the world. I think I think it's a great disservice to say the people of the East have rejected Rumi when he lives and breathes in people's homes, in prayers, in their bookshelves. And on their tongues. So when a Persian person he reads barks, <laughs> if only you see in their their faces when they read these translations, it's it's just it's just horror, you know, because for them to think this this scholar of Islam is using these words in English, it's like a slap on the face. And I think we have to give Barks some benefit because he's done some really good work as a poet. And I think, in my opinion, personal opinion, we respect him. As a poet, and we think he's done a great job as a poet for himself. And this is not a translation. I would say this is an interpretation of Rumi. But on the other points, I think I agree with you. I think there's a lot of difficulty that he's had to face, and I think we just have to clarify that for the for the audiences to say he was a Muslim. Rumi was a Muslim, and this is an interpretation. If you can accept that, I think we can all be happy and say read whatever you want to read. Just understand, you know, the historical backgrounds and mm-hmm. uh, religious points that, you know, we've discussed here. So, I mean, given all of that, Ben, so given all these issues that you've, you guys have both mentioned, how should we as a Western Muslim audience then engage with Rumi's work? Like, are we saying that we need to consult several translations to kind of gauge the most accurate meaning? Or are we saying that we need to read Rumi with somebody who knows Persian? Or what exactly are we saying? Yeah, I'd love to uh, say something. I'm sure Ali has some good thoughts on that, too. And I'd love to also tie it in with the uh, kind of reflection on what he says. Yeah, to the point of like Rumi in the East, that's why I drew the dichotomy between the Persianist sphere and the Arabic sphere, because in the Persianist sphere, absolutely, Rumi is alive and well. And I was drawing that also to say in the in the Arabic world, he's more marginal. But this has influenced Muslims in the West because we tend to look to the Arab Arabic sphere as 
the authoritative space of Islam. So that's one point. Now, on the other hand, I, I totally agree that, you know, we can look at the popular versions and say, and that's why they are versions, they're not translations, and we can say that there's something to be desired. I see them as a good entry point, and I can use myself as an, an anecdote, you know, because you shared a little bit about your own journey, which is beautiful. And for me, you know, I... Uh, grew up in urban America in the 90s. And so I came across Marx's translation of Rumi. I was also reading, you know, books of other spiritual traditions, Eastern traditions, etc. I was a poet and musician. I really fell in love with Rumi. And I found in that, like, this most profound, deep exposition of divine love. And, and you know, I could feel, for me, it was like, I felt that what Rumi was experiencing was just overflowing from his being. And the poetry was just the kind of like mist that was coming forth. But I wanted to know more about what he was actually experiencing. And so I took it deeper. So, and, you know, alhamdulillah, like I've, you know, lived in the Arab world, studied Arabic, studied a little bit of Persian, although it's still elementary, um, but devoted myself to this path and practice and the poetry for the last 15 years of my life. And that's thanks to Coleman Barks. I mean, the 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 asbab, the secondary cause that Allah opened the door from, was through Coleman Barks. So that's also partially why I look at it like this: is through the eye of gratitude. Now, uh, as far as Muslims in the West, you know, it would be great if more Muslims learned Persian. I think that's a great idea, um, or study with people that know Persian. There are also very you know, more accurate translations. Um, and the way I look, by the way, at the popular version of the popular reception of Rumi in the West, and I think this is actually from my reading of Rumi, this is, this is a very, um, this is faithful to Rumi. Because one of the core messages throughout all the stories in Rumi's Masnavi is that everything, whether it appears good or evil, is good and Allah is doing it. And don't be veiled by the secondary causes from the one doing it. So in that sense, I believe it's true to Rumi to read the fact that he has become this great cultural icon as something that Allah has done, as a great gift to us. And the onus is on us now to, to finish the bridge, right? Barks and others have done this great job of building this bridge. Now, it may not be the perfect bridge, but they've laid a bunch of the foundation. So all we have to do is continue to build that bridge. And so um, I think, you know, another person, there's this Turkish woman who wrote a book about Rumi and Shams. I forget what it's called, but it's very popular. And now it's also sparked interest in Rumi. She's a secular woman. The book is not very good from a literary standpoint. I'm sorry. But and it's not true, that true to Rumi and Shams, right? But Yet, it's a door for people to enter. So who can critique that from that standpoint? There's many people that have come to my classes to learn about Rumi because of her, her, her book. There's like many, many people. So I would just say there's doors and then there's deeper levels. Now, as far as a few names that I would recommend for people to uh, look at, the best book that I've found to, as an introduction to Rumi in the English language, is called The Sufi Path of Love by William Chittick. And it, it, it takes passages of Rumi under different subjects, and he 
comments on them lightly, but you get a real representation of Rumi from someone who is uh, a, a great Persian scholar. I would also recommend the works of Leonard Lewison. For people that are interested in the historical Rumi, uh, I would look at Franklin Lewis's book, uh, Rumi, uh, East and West, Past and Present, I think it's called. Um, of course, Nicholson's translation we've mentioned. And there's a new translation of the Mesnevi by a Alan Williams that I really like. He's working on the whole six books, but he's only published the first two right now. But you can find those. I recommend that. Now, of course, shameless plug, if you want to take... Uh, we have developed a course on the poetry of Rumi where we explore the history and some of the main poetic uh, symbols that he uses and some of the stories of the Masnavi at RumiCenterWorkshops.com. We actually have a course coming up, so you're welcome to join us. But there are good resources out there. It just takes a little bit of uh, diving beneath the surface of the popular right. version. Can I recommend a translation? Yeah, yeah. I would recommend... To learn Rumi, I would say read Rumi. I would say read the Masnavi by Javed uh, Mujahideen, who's a Persian uh, English speaker. He's done probably the most. See, he 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 has a poetic approach. You know, he rhymes, which some people consider a straitjacket to the Masnavi. But like like Dick Davis, I think I think he's done a beautiful job of translating and kept the beauty. You know, so you pulled in. You don't feel like it's academic. Uh, I've read Alan Williams a little bit, and you know he's also a very good translator. Um, the book you mentioned, Baraka, is is Forty Rules of Love, and uh, that's a book I've critiqued as well because, you know, I I agree with you. I think the doors Allah Subhanahu wa Taala opens for us they come in different you know different ways, and everything Allah does is beautiful. Even the things we perce we perceive to be ugly, they're beautiful because Allah does everything beautiful. So we we can never say. You know, Box has done a horrible, ugly job. Uh, he's, you know, he's a whatever. I think we have to appreciate the works of everybody that opens the doors for us. Where, where I, where I use my my intellect, and that's another thing Allah, the owners puts on us is draw the draw the lines. And if you look at the history of the Muslims, when we when we introduce ourselves to the works of the Greeks, and and Aristotle and Plato, you know, we didn't we didn't just take it. We we studied it. We took the gems. And we discarded what we thought was not compatible with our faith, our teachings, what we considered to be essentially a burden on what who we would be as Muslims. So we have this historical precedence of going in and appreciating the beauty of whatever it is and taking it to expand and build on our faith. My worry with, with Box and these new translations that, that are popping up is the doors that open for people, what are the doors that are closing for people? I have so many people come to me and say to me, if if Rumi was was for example like you know I stuck for a lie if he if he had a homosexual relationship with with Tabriz how could I be a Muslim because these people are are practicing these these things and Ali Shafak in Four Rules of Love alludes to these these practices and Barks also has some interesting interpretations of of sexuality how many people have moved away and said you know. I don't like Rumi. I don't like these translations. This doesn't this doesn't sit well with me. And and if he could do this, why can't I do this? And I can't tell you how many people message me weekly to say I'm shocked because I moved away from all these teachings because I I felt they were authentic and they didn't sit well with me as a traditional Orthodox Muslim. So I'm having to explain to people, as well as opening doors for some people, who are the people who are leaving. These these practices of Sufism and mysticism and this element of love, because Islam essentially is love for Allah subhanahu wa taala and the, and the Prophet, peace be upon him. So we have to remember 
where we have to narrate the, the, the audiences to say it's it's a door, but at the same time, use your intellect. Just think about what you're reading. And uh, we have to have people aware of this stuff because I think otherwise we can't just leave everything and say Allah has doors for us and we pick our doors. Because I think, Baraka, your journey, subhanAllah, was a beautiful journey and you knew what you were looking for. My my worry, and I think we're not too different in age, is the young Muslims who are looking for guidance, if they're coming across these translations with no no footnotes, you know, we, we just can't leave them on their own path. I think we have to, as people who have some influence, you have far greater influence than I do. Um, we have to make sure people understand that um, the deen essentially is Islam and Rumi is just a path, you know, to to our to the truth. And however we get there, we just have to make sure we, we stay focused, inshallah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to add to that, I think, you know, to your point, this the real message of Rumi is so important for for our people as just modern people, whether Muslim or not, because for Muslims, I've really found, especially like you mentioned, young Muslims, they've been given or they've been, unfortunately, what they've been exposed to uh, as Islam is what Rumi was critiquing. It's just, you know, legalistic, do this, don't do that. It's uh, not necessarily engaging them deeper on the spiritual level. You know, I've had people, you know, Muslims come up to me and say, like, I liked your talk, but is there really spirituality in Islam? You know, unfortunately, this is a perception that a lot of people have, right? And so I'm talking about Muslims. And so Rumi has a real antidote anecdote you know he he has uh, antidote rather he has the the medicine and so i think that's really good and then i think you know for seekers yeah i mean like his message of love profound message of love like he says you know for the elect the people of marifa they know that that love is a tremendous force it is synonymous with the ultimate reality but for the the veiled people, they think it's just form and body and sensuality, right? But, you know, he's really talking about this profound metaphysics of love. And so I think this is a message that we really need for our time. And I hope that, uh, you know, we can explore this further and be conduits for that message to, you know, resonate in people's hearts, inshallah. I, I have one final question uh, for you, Baraka. That's a really important point. So when you do your course for people listening who want to join, do you do you give them the historical context of Rumi's past and what the introduction to the West was, so they're aware themselves that what you're teaching is closer to what he was teaching versus what people are picking up in popular media? Do you make that clear in for your yeah? Uh, we have a whole so yeah, we give the whole historical context of his life and his works, and then we have a whole uh, week focuses on um, his reception into the West. I couldn't go into this whole conversation, but really like starting off with the first translations uh, into European languages, talk about how the romantic poets, Goethe and Emerson and the transcendentalists, how they received it, and then the whole popularization of Rumi. And then we get into a lot of the mistranslations and uh, misrepresentations of Rumi as well. That And we bring out a lot of uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Gamard's work that you also referenced, Dara Masnevi, who's, who's a friend of mine. So yeah, we we bring in um, we bring in that as well. Excellent. Um, I have one last question before we wrap up. You have to both answer this in a line, okay? We don't have long left. So, <laughs> yeah. 
What would you say is Rumi's lasting legacy? Like, where has where has he had the most impact? Mashallah. I think his impact is upon uh, is everywhere, and I think the core message that I think resonates across time, in essence, and I know this is a long line, forgive me, but, uh, you know, why did this medieval Muslim, you know, scholar of Sharia law, right? He's in a world that is so different from the modern, postmodern, secular, multicultural West. Why is he so successful? And I think even though it is a mystery, it's not. It's because he gets to the universal reality of the human condition, that we feel a sense of estrangement or separation from our source, from our origin, and we intuit that there is a way back. And that way is related to love. And it is through the heart and that it's not just a wishy-washy love, but it's actually a profound metaphysical reality that if we can unlock it, can transform us and awaken us to who we've always been. And that's the core message. And that relates to all people at all times. Oh, that's beautiful. I'll forgive the long line for that. <laughs> Zarar, what's your um, thought? I think, I think for me, it's been, I think it's the same thing that always Muhammad al-Wazali had done and Atar had done and many other Sufi poets and mystics have done, which was, which was seekers of the self and studying of it to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think that's it. And through that secret and unveiling, to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that has been the path of love that a lot of modern audiences are finding because that self-realization takes you back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah. Okay, uh, Baraka, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Allah bless you and all you do. And uh, we, were, we, we were hoping to do a trip to Konya this uh, yes. this September, <laughs> but it didn't happen. So inshallah. I know, I know. Maybe next year, inshallah. <laughs> Thank you for listening as always you can find further information in our show notes including a link for baraka's poetry course alternatively search for Rumi center workshops we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and the topic discussed tweet at us at s footsteps or find us on facebook and instagram as sacred footsteps